my precious little listeners, I'm here to let you in on a secret. Over on Patreon, some interesting things are happening with History Obscura's podcast. You see, starting tonight, every single night, I'm going to be reading a new chapter of Henry Meyer's The Utmost Island, an enthralling tale of Eric the Red, and Leif Erikson as they explore the farthest reaches of the northern seas. If you've already worked your way through the entire History Obscura podcast episode list, well, firstly, good for you. Secondly, you will already be familiar with a few chapters of this story. So, tonight I'm starting off with Chapter 5, which I am going to release to all of you as of right now. For the remaining 22 chapters, just go to patreon.com forward slash history obscura and join Frank and Tito's nightly story club. Yes, that is Frank and Tito, the podcast mascot with scars over a million. Sign up and he'll let me out of my cage every night to read you a story. <coughs> yes, yes, I've told them. Anyhow, so that's patreon.com forward slash history obscura. Please, help. Chapter 5 Guest is one of the very oldest of all words. Even in the 10th century, its original meaning had long been forgotten and replaced by one very different. Julius Caesar who, to the Vikings, was merely an ancient fable, conquered their remote ancestors as much by double-dealing as by the sword. The victories by double-dealing were the more arduous, because Caesar's artless foemen did not trust his ambassadors and usually killed them before they could get to the deadly business of negotiating. Caesar it was, therefore, who for expediency's sake established the universal law that an ambassador is sacred. This he did by such bloody, thousandfold reprisals that the barbarians remembered the principle long after they had bargained away their freedom. A thousand years after Caesar and his empire were dead, the custom had grown even stronger because it had become intertwined with superstition, to the extent that any visitor from a foreign land was a safe and privileged being, to be entertained so bounteously that he could carry no ill tale back home. This concept developed, in turn, until ultimately a host would seek to overwhelm his guest with such fabulous generosity that he would despise the country he had come from. It is related of Thorolf Skallergrimsen, that when King Harold Fairhair visited him, the entertainment was so splendid that the king became jealous and turned red in the face. Harold arrived with three hundred retainers, but Thorolf greeted him with five hundred of his own. This, he said, was the better to do honor to his exalted guest. The king murmured a hope that so large a following as his would not overcrowd his host's dwelling. But Thorolf led them to an immense new hall which he had built especially for the purpose. There followed a feast of unheard-of munificence, 
with gifts of gold to all and a famous skald who composed songs in the king's honor. Throughout the traditional three-day visit, Thorolf's monumental hospitality continued, while his guest grew ever more morose. When the time for parting came, they went together to the beach. There, instead of the ship in which Harald had arrived, was a much more handsome one, carved in the form of a dragon, with gaily colored tents on its deck and fitted with every kind of comfort. This Thorolf presented as a parting gift. They say the king never forgave him. The feast in honor of Olaf's priest was somewhat nearer to what Caesar had in mind. Here was more than a guest to be overpowered with bounty. He was an envoy from a king who, everybody felt, had it in his mind to conquer them. His resentful host was trapped by custom into a semblance of graciousness, but could not bring himself to make the actual preparations. To others, it would be a feast. To him, a celebration of his own shame, however compensated by momentary distinction. He could not forget how his wife had snatched their son from him with the priest looking on, that seemed to be a little foretaste of the future. He therefore steered a course that avoided all his varied feelings as skillfully as ever he had guided a ship around hidden rocks. This he did by making his wife attend to everything, telling her that after all, the priest was more her guest than his. And so he was, the guest of one of her wayward thoughts, who strangely refused to leave with his furious eyes, his black, graying hair, his handsome frame, and the way he had outfaced her husband. She was delighted to take charge, having already spread the news of their visitor by hint, boast, offhand reference, and innuendo, so that by the time she began sending out invitations, every peak and plain in Iceland was wondering why she had been so long about it. The response was prodigious. For a while, they thought they might have to do as Thorolf Skallengrimson had and build a special hall to hold the diners. While his wife busied herself with the arrangements, tyrannizing rapturously over the servants, the size and relentless actuality of the coming event evoked a different preoccupation in him. He knew that some sort of public attitude would be expected of him. Trying this one and that, he found them all unsatisfactory, and was still undecided when the night of the feast arrived, and the first guest was entering his door. At once, the many tentative postures rushed back into his mind for final, inevitable choice. He chose to be himself, that is, a defender of the old and loved against the new and odious. He managed to fulfill this role without sacrificing that of host, by binding them together under a covering of stubborn grandeur. As he greeted each arrival, he was conscious that he himself was a tall man, and therefore, literally as it were, 
eminent, like a boulder on a crag, which might topple one way or another, or not at all. Everyone for miles around knew by gossip what was going on in his household, and there had been much speculation as to how he would carry it off. He was on trial, but his manner and his wife's arrangements were alike magnificent and both had to be admired. That at length happened, not gradually but abruptly. All the guests suddenly and simultaneously admitted it by small, almost imperceptible nods of admiration. Then he knew he had achieved success, of precisely the shape and color he wanted. He began to enjoy himself. It was a curious enjoyment, flavored with danger. Most particularly, he relished what he thought was the open envy of Theobrand the priest. Envy it was not, truly not. Certainly, Theobrand himself thought it was not, although his astonishment as he noticed the tapestries, the wood carvings, the golden dishes and the slaves, made him seem to be wishing they were his, or at least his master's. But his real wish, deeply felt and painfully reached, was that he might somehow have all what he saw, everywhere, always, for the glory of his god. Such a wish was a much graver threat to these Icelanders, more terrible in its relentlessness, though they did not know it, than any devotion to a king could have been. It was their certain doom, whose messenger was their guest. Their swords were futile against it. Their bravery was futile. A troop of giant centuries was coming to stamp on them until nothing of them would remain but this shadowy tale which we have forgotten how to believe. However, they felt alarm enough as they saw the priest's all-devouring look, since all had, some time and somewhere, felt the kind of envy they thought he felt now. Without a word being said about it, they looked at one another and mistook his purpose. But they knew that they and their island were in common peril. Then they looked toward their host. He had earned respect by his behavior. Now they expected leadership of him. He, too, was an Iceland bonder and must see the danger. They stretched their legs beneath the great laden tables, leaving him the field. He appreciated the honored position of standard-bearer, thus silently offered, and swiftly planned his battle. Back to his master must King Olaf's priest be sent, with the news that wondrous Iceland and its bonders were beyond the taking. By hint and indirection only, should that message be entrusted to their enemy guest, amid amenities and song, with no man eating or drinking less than the utmost. A redoubtable, worthy task. So be it. He looked about to make sure there was no stint of roast or beer. Then, as if unsheathing a sword, he extended his right arm grandly 
toward Bjorn the Skald, who sat opposite him and continued the gesture to the seat at his own right, where Theobrand was, as though to say, Let us have a song, Bjorn, in honor of our chief guest. Bjorn, who had been awaiting just such a signal, at once set his harp against his theme and, looking directly across the hall at Theobrand, swept his hand over the strings with a flourish that was both greeting and challenge. He continued strumming for a moment and staring at Theobrand, considering him and planning what his opening verse should say. It is a much graver thing to sing a thought about a man than it is to say it, especially when many people are listening. Then it becomes a ritual, with the singer himself a kind of priest, and all the extra meanings of the words, dimmed through often being spoken, are suddenly revealed anew. No one will lightly offend a skull, nor refuse him any gift, lest he make a mocking little poem that may stick in the ear and be sung around the land. Worse, he might not sing of one at all, and of what use are great forgotten deeds that otherwise were history. Priest of the King, sang Bjorn suddenly. That was a skillful way to begin, stating completely in the very first line what all thought about Theobrand, as well as what he very likely thought about himself. Other phrases followed which fitted him in the same manner, such as bringer of words, and servant of a slain god. Having at length named Theobrand in so many ways that any vanity he could have must be surfeited, Bjorn went on to sing of Iceland, with hints of how it felt about its visitor. He used the past tense, making it sound as if all he sang had long been part of recorded history, which no one would question. The song told how Theobrand had come, how Iceland's bonders had gathered to greet him, and how they had reached a peaceable understanding of each other. The song ended thus, with a sort of short summary. The home of Odin welcomed the priest of a foreign faith. Over the food we were friendly. No sword itched in the scabbard. Empty the fields of battle. Vainly waited the vultures. He stopped singing suddenly, leaving all inferences unsaid and looking expectantly towards his host. The latter took a gold ring from his finger and tossed it to Bjorn, who caught it dexterously, appraising it pleasurably with one eye while he drank to the giver's health. But more than a ring was expected by the assembly. The harp was passed from hand to hand up to the high seat, for the master of the house to add authority to what had just been sung. He chose as his theme the tale of those who dwelt here before, of his great-grandfather Ingolf, who was the first settler, because he would not be ruled in Norway by King Harald Fairhair, but chose to be a ruler himself in unknown Iceland, if only over his own slaves. 
He set sail with others whose minds were like his own, and they named him Sea King, the first here to be so called. When their ships came in sight of this cape, Ingolf cast overboard a wooden image of Thor. Where it floated ashore, they landed and called the place Thor's Haven. The hill that overlooks it he named Thor's Hill, and forbade any man to kill within sight of it, or to walk upon its slopes unwashed. At the foot of the hill, covered by a huge mound of Iceland's earth, is buried the ship that brought Ingolf. He himself sits on its deck, in full armor, reminding us of the course he set for us to steer. On the hill, a temple to Thor was built. And in it we worship Thor still, and always shall, and so shall our children, remembering he found the place for us to land and live, and protects it and us with his great hammer, which cracks even the sky. A hammer makes the sword, and the sword guards the hammer. He drew his sword halfway from its sheath and thrust it significantly back. There was silence again, this time of a dead kind. Nothing was left to say, unless one should say too much and offend their guest. They did not even eat or drink for a while, but sat looking at Olaf's priest marveling a little at how different a meaning he now had for them, because two songs had been sung. Theobrand was silent too, though he was in a rage that few men could have controlled. He understood everything that had been said, or meant, hints, insults, threats, and all. He had long since vowed that nothing, Nothing should ever get in the way of the task he had set himself. Neither his own feelings, nor anyone's feelings, nor any amount of pain or destruction to mind or body, of all the world if need be. He buried his rage in the two pits he had dug at the corners of his mouth, in which earlier rages lay buried. He himself, it was, who spoke first. Song for song, he said. Give me the harp. It was handed to him. He struck its strings once or twice, very much as Bjorn had done, except that his mind was made up as to what he would sing. I will relate to you, he said, some of the great deeds of Olaf Tryggvesen, King of Norway by the grace of God, 